for an open seat in the Pennsylvania State Legislature. So dad ran for that campaign and ultimately lost the primary. My senior year of high school, I was completely consumed with his election and I never lost that interest in politics. So during the course of that spring, one day, a friend who was working in the Reagan campaign told me that Ronald Reagan was going- Please go off mic, I appreciate it. That Ronald Reagan was going to come to the Italian market in Philadelphia. And that if I would be standing in Esposito's meat market at 9th and Christian, I think, I would have I would have the opportunity to meet Ronald Reagan. So I stood there, I met him. I'm looking at the faces in this room and most are too young to know the reference, but I had a pocket Instamatic camera with me. I'd been too lazy to carry the flash. was viciously attacked by a lunatic inspired by conspiracy theories. Uh, instead of having empathy for an 82-year-old man with a fractured skull, instead, the discussion has been through Elon Musk tweeting that it may have been a homosexual encounter based on absolutely no evidence, uh, jokes being made at this poor guy's um, expense, uh, to the point Donald Trump Jr. said, this is going to be my Halloween costume, which was a pair of underwear and a hammer, making fun of Mr. Pelosi. Uh, we have come to a point, uh, at least in my lifetime, that I haven't seen, uh, that instead of talking, we're demonizing, and we're headed down a very dangerous path. 
Uh, you recently gave a uh, speech at the unconvention, and I really want to explore that, looking at that. So first, was it always this way? Or is this something new? No, it was definitely not always this way. When I came of age in the 1980s as a Republican, uh, very active on a local and then state and national level, there was far more civility than there exists today. The House and the Senate were also completely different than they are today. Many people think of the 1980s, whether they lived through it or reflect on it as this go-go era for conservatism, because Ronald Reagan was the president for eight years. But in truth, 60% of the House and 60% of the Senate in the 80s were comprised of moderates. There were so many moderates within the Republican Party at the time that in the Senate, they had their own gathering and they called it the Wednesday Lunch Club. And the members included... it got so bad. I have a very clear answer. I might be wrong, but I'm pretty steadfast in it. I recognize that there are problems with campaign finance and consequently it's become a fundraising game. And as you and I were discussing, there's no time for civility. You know, when you break bread with someone, when you have a cocktail with someone, you're less likely to demonize them. They don't even know one another. So campaign finance reform is an issue. You know that gerrymandering is an issue. Something else that needs to be discussed here is that self-sorting is an issue. We are living with and associating with the like-minded, and the internet has made that much, much easier to do. You know, you can not only play a video game with someone in Ukraine, but you can much more easily suss out someone who's a progressive or a conservative if that's to your likeling. Uh, so there are a whole list of factors that have made us more polarized. But in my view, number one on the list, the media. And I had a front row seat for this. I remember coming of age as a young, aspiring talk radio host. Rush Limbaugh was nominated, pardon me, Rush Limbaugh was um, put into syndication in 1988 and totally transformed what had been local radio markets with local hosts all across the country into now syndicated talent from a particular political perspective. When I got started on talk radio here in Philadelphia at a radio station called WWDB, we had a liberal a conservative, we had men, we had women, we had a travel show, a sex show, we had a, uh, a doctor's in show, a real estate show. In other words, the glue that held the personalities together was your ability to conduct a conversation and make the phones ring. Politics was secondary, but with Russia's success in 88, he now sort of set the stage for Fox News coming on line in 1990.
or left. But you stated there's a big, big middle that's not being addressed. And that's our salvation if we have it. But when it's ratings driven, how do we get these people involved? Because the passionate will watch They'll either the really hot left or the hot right, they'll get the ratings. How do we engage you in the media? How do you engage the middle so that we can have a moderate uh, discussion again? So you're right in saying that the perception is that, you know, if you landed here from a, from a different planet and all you consumed was political media uh, from the internet or from the cable outlets, you would be convinced more progressive on social issues and more fiscally conservative. But you don't see evidence of kind of the in-between, middle-of-the-road independent thinkers in any of the media that you might tune into. The problem is that the passion exists on the far ends of the spectrum. Who's going to write the check? Who's going to sign the petition? Who's going to run for office? Who's going to put up a yard sign, et cetera, et cetera? They are the most passionate among us. And they're the ones who drive the equation for the nominations, especially in closed primary states like Pennsylvania and eight others. But the reality is that the bulk of the country are somewhere in between. You referenced the, the Hidden Tribes study of a couple of years ago, which was 8,000 people surveyed. And yes, it found that there's a small minority who are hard left and are hard right. But there are many more, I'll be presumptuous and say, of us for whom the issues are a mixed bag. But you'd never know that by looking at the media or listening to our politicians. So, you know, what must we do if we want to embolden those who are greatest in number? We've got to convince them, first of all, that there's strength in numbers. And secondly, I think we've got to convince more people to get out of their... And 206, which I've told my students, I don't know how many know this here, but Facebook, Twitter, they're not responsible for what is said by people on their site. So you can't sue them for defamation. And if you sue the individual who's often anonymous, they don't have the money anyway to go after them. The real benefit is to go after the people with money. But how do we force decency or force responsibility of the people in the microphone? If we, if there is no penalty for what they say. So, okay, there's there's a lot there to respond to. And the first thing I think I would say is that the most important thing I think we learned from Frances Haugen, who was the Facebook whistleblower, she confirmed the idea that Facebook was manipulating its algorithms to give amplification to anger, because that which holds people's attention is whatever makes them angry.
create, I'm paraphrasing here, but a, a robust town square where the extremes would not control the dialogue, but frankly, in line with things that I just said to you a moment ago, Musk also said that he, he didn't want Twitter to become a, a hellscape. Um, and then lo and behold, what ends up happening, that horrible attack takes place on Paul Pelosi. I've gone back and I've unraveled what was the origin of where the rumors got started. But it fits your narrative, right? I mean, for, for profit motive, uh, you could have someone like me dissecting, as I did on radio today, the affidavit of probable cause. Uh, interesting, but not as exciting and interesting as if I just put out some wild rumor about who was wearing underwear at the time, you know, and we reward, we reward the, the short soundbite and the misinformation. Uh, and it's got to be unraveled now for, I mean, I, I, I think that no matter how clear the San Francisco Police Department was, nor that affidavit with all of its specificity, there are some people among us who are just going to choose to believe that rumor, no matter what we should tell them with facts. You said on your show that when you have a mic and you have a voice to the public, that you are not only talking to the sane, but sometimes the dangerous. And you have to be responsible in what you're saying and make sure that your sources are correct. But what happens when you have a situation, what you just said, where you're rewarded with, with um, ratings, you're rewarded with a better job because you got more clicks, so you got more people coming to you as opposed to being responsible. How do we force responsibility onto a system that rewards irresponsibility? Yeah, and this is, I mean, this is the, the heart of the issue. And I don't know that I have a, a simple solution for it, but the, the worst actors in my business earn the highest reward. They get the most viewers, they get the most click, the salacious sells. And it would be one thing if it were only entertainment directed, but because now there's been this blending together of entertainment and news in some people's minds, uh, those who are looking at a television product or listening to a radio product can no longer distinguish between the two. I, I grew up in the Philadelphia suburbs. At the time, we had UHF and VHF. I don't know which was which, but one of them was channels three, six, and 10 and the other was channels 17, 29, and 48. And to these young faces at Thomas Jefferson University, yes, six channels was all we got. You know, my father got this contraption that went on our roof where we would turn this rotary dial on top of our TV and it would direct our antenna toward New York and we could pick up WOR, which was channel nine. And like, that was revelatory. Like we, we were a house that got channel nine. Well, the point is, is that on Saturday mornings in the 70s, on those upper channels, my brother and I used to watch pro wrestling. And we were totally taken in to pro wrestling and the personalities, and we would act out and imitate. You know, there were good guys and there were bad guys, and there was nobody in between. They had managers, and it was all shtick, right? Our parents knew that it was fake, but we didn't. And I like to say, like, look at me now. I loved that as a kid, and now I work in an industry that is the pro wrestling of media, because that's what it's become. And I know... Most of them, it's, it's a total role.
role that they're playing. Well, one last thing, if I can say on this, you, you know Alex Jones. Alex Jones, who's just been now successfully sued by 9-11 families for horrible things that he said about Sandy Hook. He's a 9-11 a denier. I mean, the worst of the worst. Well, it's been now about three or four years, but he was in a child custody battle in Texas. And his now ex-wife was seeking custody of their children and introduced things that he had said on his programs, enormous reach, things that he had said on his television and radio programs as evidence for his unfitness to parent their kids. And the response from Alex Jones's lawyer was to say, that's not fair. He's playing a role. And holding him accountable for the things that he has said on television would be akin to holding Jack Nicholson accountable for his depiction of the Joker, do I have the character right, in Batman. It was a complete and utter admission of everything I've, I've always known about it. It's he'll say anything to ring the register. But the fault is not, listen, I'll never defend as long as I live Alex Jones, but right. the fault is not with him, it's with us because we listen to him and we give him an audience. And what, I, what I've seen happen, uh, and going back a little bit, there was a movie several years ago called Network. And Network- Mad as hell. And yeah, and Network was based on this crazy idea that news was gonna become a spectacle, that it was gonna be pure entertainment, that the suicide of the, of the newscaster was going to be part of the show. And you looked at it, oh, that's crazy. You know, that was- a days of Walter Cronkite and you know those type of people but yet everything they said has come true and we want entertainment we want wrestling and even those of us who know it's fake don't care because all we want is entertainment look at Donald Trump whatever you want to say about him he was entertaining uh, people want to listen to him uh, laugh or get angry whatever it is and we've lost we don't think we care anymore about the reality. We feel that we're divorced from it. Everything happens anyway. We're out of power. So why don't we just have a good time as the show goes on? So I think the fault lies in us, not in these people of listening to them and knowing what we want. So the question becomes, how do we bring this back? That people actually care about politics. They care about policy. They care about um, voting, not us against them, but actually saying, I like that policy, I like that law, let me vote for it. I think what we have to do is that it begins with getting people to recognize that their viewing and listening habits have consequences. And, and in ways that they might not recognize. If, if I go online and I'm looking to, to purchase something, maybe it's a trip, maybe it's a piece of furniture, maybe it's a lemon pie, you know what it's like to then be, be uh, uh, followed by vendors online. Like every time, you know, you go on for it, oh my God, somebody wants to sell me more lemon pie, right? We all know this now, that they, they have our number, but they also have your number with regard to your, uh, your Facebook newsfeed and your Google headlines. And you might think that you're well-read, but really you're being fed stories that you've shown a, a predisposition toward liking. There's an awareness campaign that needs to be held where people have to free themselves of where they're typically getting news and change the channel. My, I mean, I do this for a living, so maybe I have to do this, but I don't go to bed at night without making sure I've looked at Fox, 
I've looked at CNN and I've looked at MSNBC to make sure that I know what all the spectrums are saying so that I can be knowledgeable in the morning on the radio and, and, and talk about from a balanced perspective, what's going on. But too many of us are locked in an AM, terrestrial talk radio, Drudge, Breitbart, or Slate, Salon, MSNBC, okay, I'll put CNN in there too. And it's like never the two shall meet. And to me, it's part and parcel of the biggest problem of all that we face, which is, I'll use Bill Maher's word from, from two weekends ago, a lack of mingling. We're just not spending time in our lives with people who are different than we are. And, and we need to maximize opportunities for common understanding that come from shared experience. I'm glad you brought that up because I have friends who we don't agree with politically. And instead of talking about it, about our differences, we've decided not to talk about it because it becomes heated. And I, I remember years ago, you could have a discussion on policy without it becoming personal. How does, how, why does that happen and how do we, how do we fix that? Well, at least you didn't say, and you're not going to have Thanksgiving together, right. and that you've cut them off. Because I think the response of many has been to just completely go underground with regard to some friends or, or relations, because it's gotten so heated, and they're fearful of a, of a political um, confrontation. Look, it's, it's bigger than just politics. And there's a, lot of, there's a lot of social science that's been written on this subject that I've, I've taken the time to read and interview the authors. And a couple of books come to mind. One of them was Robert Putnam, Bowling Alone. And another is uh, uh, Bill Bishop, The Big Sort. And another is Charles Murray, Coming Apart. There's an economist at Harvard whose name is Raj Chetty who works in this same area. And what they've documented in the social science is how in an internet era especially, gone are the days when our parents belonged to the Rotary Club or the Elks Club or, you know, in my parents' case in Doylestown, the Moose Lodge and read the local newspapers and were active in whatever the local JCs might be involved with, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The internet has allowed us to seek out individuals by particular interest. It could be a hobby, could be a profession, it could be politics, and makes it easier to associate with the like-minded. And when we're living with the like-minded and raising our kids, and by the way, I'm guilty as sin in all of the things that I'm describing. This literature has just made me realize uh, how much so. But when we're all going our separate ways and there's nobody serving in the military anymore, because the military burden is shared by so few Americans, we're just not having common experience. The most common experience that I, I have today, if I were not in front of all of you, was when I was at Wawa at 5.30 this morning. Because at Wawa this morning, there were landscapers and there were women in fatigues, um, medical, I mean, uh, they, they looked to me like they're probably nurses, like all walks of life in a Wawa at that one time. Now, the extent of our interaction was maybe to say good morning and maybe to hold the door. But just think about your life, and maybe you're, you're different and in a better place, but we're not, we're not spending time on those shared experiences like my father described when he was in the Korean conflict, and on day one, same haircut, same bunk, 
same food, same responsibility. And from that came a bonding experience. We need to mingle more, whether it's in our media choices, our community activism, our daily lives. School, by the way, university environment is a great, is a great place where that still takes place. Funny you say it, because with the internet and with streaming, I remember the six stations as well. Sure. And the Mary Tyler Moore show was on. We'd all talk about, did you watch it? Because you really didn't have many choices. And we got together at the water cooler situation and you talked about it. But now there's a million different shows and a million different people involved in all these things segregating themselves out. So it really hit a, hit a, a point when you said that. Uh, you made a quote, and I want, want you to explain it in your speech. You said, research says that the most individualistic and self-focused nation in the world by far is the United States. Um, their diagnosis, me culture, we are suffering from meism. Uh, what did you mean by that? In line with the sort of things that I was saying a moment ago, we're also self-focused, myself included. Neil deGrasse Tyson, the astrophysicist, was a guest of mine. He and I were on Bill Maher together two weeks ago. And, and I had the opportunity to spend time with him. I've always had this crazy question in my head. If aliens landed on Earth, would we want them to be religious? One, 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 day, one, day I went, one day I went, I was doing morning drive, which used to be a, a 3 a.m. wake-up call. And so then I'd be at Wawa by, you know, 3.30. And I was driving to Wawa this one particular day, and I heard this report about this new telescope that had been developed. And it just put this idea in my head, like, wow, we're going to see way out there now. What if we see some alien life, and they come here, do we be religious? Is that going to make us more or less safe? So now I find myself in a, in a dressing room with this paper-thin wall in California two weeks ago, and on the other side of the wall is the nation's foremost astrophysicist, Neil deGrasse Tyson. So, of course, I turn on my phone, and I go next door, and I said, Neil, if there's alien life, do we want them to be religious? He thought I was a lunatic. <laughs> he had no idea that this was like an ongoing radio thing of mine, but I really wanted his answer. His answer, by the way, is no. <laughs> Interesting. Um, so in terms of the meism, he's just written this book. When I've traveled abroad, not that frequently, but when I've traveled abroad, I always have this feeling when I come home to the United States, like, my God, we are so self-centered and focused only on the problems of this country when it's a big world out there. And lo and behold, he just published a book called Starry Messenger. And the whole premise is, hey, viewed from space, you know, we're all in this together. And when you're in space and you look at the globe, you don't see those neatly defined countries color-coded like they're on a globe as they were in, in uh, elementary school. There's something to be learned from that. And he took my argument to a much brighter and uh, uh, intelligent level. But that's what I was trying to say. I was trying to say, again, through more common experience, we might realize that person over there is not just a conservative or a Trumpster or a progressive or, you know, but, but rather we've got, we've got something in common here. We don't feel that anymore. We also feel a lot of antagonism. Right. Um, I was going through my neighborhood in Sherry Hill and in front of one house was... And it's a flag that was huge. Um, let's go, Brandon. And which I found an amazing statement because it's sort of putting a middle finger up to people who disagree with you, whatever it may be. I never saw that when I was growing up. 
in between. I never saw, uh, I, I can't use the whole word here, but I went skiing with my family and we went into uh, North uh, Pennsylvania near um, Elk. And we went into town to buy some things to drink at night. And on Main Street, on Main Street where there are kids and family that would go, was a, a flag you would see at the Eagles game. Huge. F, but the whole word, Biden. Right. I don't understand that. And I, I know that you speak about us getting together, but have we gone too far? Well, we have. It's become normalized, right? And what I'm most fearful of, I, uh, my wife and I have four children, uh, three of whom are sons are all in their 20s. So a lot of contemporaries with people who are in this room, some of you, and they don't know anything different than this. That's what concerns me is because to them, like this is the political environment and I guess this is the way that it's always been. I don't want to oversell the 70s, the 80s and so forth because there was a lot of contention then too, but nothing like there is now. I, I like telling the story just to sort of establish a benchmark that when Reagan was the conservative Republican president of the United States, Tip O'Neill was the Democratic House Speaker, and they had a good relationship. Uh, friends after 5 p.m. was the way that they would describe it, and politically night and day. But Reagan hosted Tip O'Neill at the White House for Tip O'Neill's 69th birthday and proposed this old Irish toast. He said, Tip, if I had a ticket to heaven and you didn't have one too, I'd throw mine away and go to hell with you. The idea that today you would have uh, or would have had, say, John Boehner and Barack Obama, or that you might have Kevin McCarthy and Joe Biden sharing that kind of a, a moment of, of warmth. It just doesn't take place. The last time that we saw it was in the aftermath of September 11. And I would hate to think that it's going to take a national catastrophe like that to unite these forces again. Or even uh, all inspector and Joe Biden. Completely different uh, parties, but they would get together on the train coming back from Washington. True. And in um, one of the speeches that Spectre made, he said we would be out on the train. Sometimes we'd agree. Sometimes we'd disagree. But we'd always would talk it out and leave the train friends. And that's not happening now. So we have to get back to, again, talking to each other. And you were, you were saying about self-sorting. Um, How do we un-self-sort? How do we communicate with each yeah, other? Yeah, just, just to define the, the problem, there are 3,000 or so counties in the United States. And if you define a landslide presidential election, I may screw this up a little bit, but trust me on the point. If you define a landslide presidential election as an election that one candidate wins by 20 or more points, if you go back 30 or so years, the number of landslide counties would be about 300 out of 3,000. And yet in the last election, it's closer to 1,700. Well, think about that for a moment because Gerrymandering is when, after the census every 10 years, the state legislative boundaries and the congressional boundaries on a federal level are redrawn based on population shifts, okay? So they are constantly changing. A state representative may be representing Lower Marion, right, for 10 years, and then all of a sudden lose Lower Marion and pick up Chestnut Hill. That's redistricting. 
And, and so, you know, gerrymandering accounts for the drawing of those boundary lines, but our county boundary lines are fixed. So what accounts for an exponential growth in landslide counties, Montgomery County, Chester County, Bucks County, just think of the, the collar suburbs in this area. Uh, they are all on the rise. Well, what it speaks to are that the like-minded are living together. Now, maybe if you have the gift of mobility, maybe if financially you're able, you can leave California and go to Texas. That might explain some of it. I don't know what explains the rest of it. Is it osmosis? Like you get to an area, you're, you're, you're a progressive person, and all of a sudden you move to a red congressional district and you take on that mindset? Are you now silent? You're just not politically active and you don't vote? Landslide counties being on the rise speaks to the level of self-sorting. Another analytic that you can review, uh, David Wasserman at the, at the Cook Political Report is responsible for this, but he analyzes elections based on Cracker Barrel and Whole Foods. And what he notes is that Cracker Barrel and Whole Foods often don't build in the same area. If you live in an area that has both, think about it, I'll bet you live in a purple area. Montgomery County, near where I live, has both a Cracker Barrel and a Whole Foods in, in the Plymouth meeting uh, area. So you're able to look at who wins, who wins areas with Cracker Barrel and who wins areas with uh, Whole Foods. And what David Wasserman is documented is that if you go back several cycles, the gap between the two had been relatively small. And it was, I want to say, 56 or 57 percent of a difference. Joe Biden, no surprise, won the Whole Foods areas and Donald Trump won the Cracker Barrel areas. Again, those aren't shifting. There's something going on where we are living along, among the like minded. Or, or maybe it's the food. Could be. Well, I, I think they build based on the political trends. I think if you and I were in development for Whole Foods or Cracker Barrel, we'd be looking at election results and deciding where to go. I wouldn't be surprised. You mentioned something earlier, and one of our um, pre-questioners asked this. What is the effect of no term limits? And how could term limits on congressmen and senators, how could that maybe alleviate some of the problem? Well, I'd like to see there be term limits. The critics would say, we have term limits every two years for the House and every six years for the Senate. And if voters want to get rid of any elected representatives, they have the ability to do that in, a, in an election. Um, you take a look at how many politicians, and this has been particularly true among the Republicans, who find their voice when they retire. I mentioned Boehner earlier. John Boehner wrote a memoir and tells this incredible story about Michelle Bachman coming to see him and demanding that she be given a seat on the Ways and Means Committee, the most powerful committee in the Congress. And Boehner writing in his memoir, there was no way in hell I would ever give it to her. And he calls her a crackpot. He would never have done that, you know, when he were still in office. They find their voice when they're getting out. Well, wouldn't it be great if they were all getting out at some point defined so that they'd have more courage? I think that there'd be some fundamental changes that might result if they were there and knew this wasn't going to be a forever job. And, and the other side is the constant money raising. Because if you're, you have a two-year limit, 
you're constantly raising money. The day you're elected, you're, you're raising money for the next two years, and you're appealing to the passionate to give you the money. If you knew that you only had two terms or whatever, you wouldn't always be raising it, or maybe four-year terms for congressmen, so at least there'd be time you're not raising money and appealing to the passionate. There was a day when you'd be elected to Congress or to the Senate, and you'd relocate to Washington, D.C., and the kids would go to school somewhere in the D.C. area, and your partner would join you, and social events would then be driven by your being in Washington and not being back in the district. Today, being elected to Congress typically means, unless you're in a leadership position and there are other demands on you, but typically means that you're there roughly according to a school calendar, Tuesdays through Thursdays. There's nothing taking place Mondays and Fridays. And they get out of Dodge as quickly as they can, to your point, to go home and fundraise. And because there's nobody in town, they never get to know those from the other party in particular. If you knew people from the other party, you'd be, as we both said earlier, less likely to demonize them. But that just doesn't take place. Another thing that um, somebody raised, which you also brought up, is the fear of talking to people about your opinions about being criticized, and in a lot of ways, people are self-censoring and not expressing themselves. Have you seen that, and how do we fight that? Well, I think what I find are people like you referenced earlier, that, that they're just choosing not to discuss politics with those who are close to them, that they know don't uh, agree with them. I, I, don't, I don't see people being... Um, shy to express their feelings the way the question, I think, suggests. Instead, I think it's become much more difficult to maintain friendships and to maintain family relationships. I also see the data now from young people that comes from a lot of dating sites talking about how they're not interested in dating someone, much less marrying someone who has a different political philosophy. That's a relatively new phenomenon. That, that used to be much lower on the priority list than it was, you know, 20 or 30 years ago. Getting back to you and the media, just for a second, before we open it up to sure. questions. Uh, we know that people like Tucker Carlson, Sean Hannity, Rush Limbaugh have made big careers, being um, controversial, uh, made a lot of money uh, through selling books or on TV. Do you ever feel tempted in order to advance your career, or do you know people who have feel tempted and gone that way? Well, I want to advance my career. Let's 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 be real about this. I want to advance my career by talking about independent thinking, how compromise is not a dirty word, how power really can be somewhere centered in this country, if only we would recognizing it. If I can line my pocket by preaching a message of civility and coming together, you ought to be elated for me to, to be successful in doing so, because it would be in the country's best interest. I assure you, it's, it's not my motivation. My, my quick background story is that when dad ran for that state legislative race back in 1980 and lost, I was completely bitten by the political bug. I had grown up in a Republican house. So I, I think as many of, us, many of us often do, you kind of register initially in the party 
of your parents. At least that's what I did. I now went off to undergraduate studies at Lehigh University and worked on a number of campaigns, including working for George Bush as he became vice president as an advance man. I had this incredible gig where I, I was 18, 19 years old, and I was traveling around the country as a member of the advance staff planning the logistics of his personal appearances. Everybody thought I was from the White House. I was just there on like a $42 a day per diem, which for me at age 18, 19 was plenty of beer money and the greatest gig going. So I was politically active, finished my undergraduate education. I go off to law school now at Penn, and lo and behold, that same state legislative seat that my father had run for unsuccessfully became open. And I thought, this is the Hollywood ending, right? The year is 1986, and I run as a Republican for this open state legislative seat. Four-way primary, I lose by 419 votes at age 25. 419. As I like to say, I've since located 236 of those people. Um, a joke which, by the way, makes no sense if you think about it logically. But so so I, I was I was hardcore active GOP of the specter stripe of Republican, I would like to think. And I became disenchanted with the Republican Party post-September 11, because I thought that the Bush administration, W's administration, had given up the hunt for bin Laden and Ayman al-Zawahiri. It's a long story, and I've written about it if you're interested, but they took me as like a military tourist over to the Middle East thinking they were going to convince me and a group of other so-called leaders of, of the merit of the war on terror. And all I did was come home thinking we'd taken our eye off the ball of, of what was going on in the war on terror and got diverted into Iraq and Afghanistan. Lo and behold, it's 2008. And because of that, I now had an open ear that I might not otherwise have had toward the junior senator from the state of Illinois. And when Barack Obama came on my radio program and I asked him about fighting the war on terror, he said to me, and this became a big story, that he would pursue bin Laden even if he were hiding in Pakistan. Well, we all know how that story ended. It was the first of many interviews that I had with him, and I decided, you know what? I'm breaking ranks. I'm voting for Obama in 08. Now the question was, am I going to tell anybody? Because I was, I was on a very conservative local. I was not yet in national syndication. To go back to your point about how you get ahead in my business, this was potentially a death knell if I were to acknowledge to my conservative Republican radio audience that I was not voting for John McCain, with whom, by the way, I had a relationship, but I was going to vote for Obama. And I did explain it. Uh, never told anybody how to how to vote, but I laid it out in a long essay and in commentaries. It became a very big deal. Pennsylvania was very much being contested, and uh, I was still a Republican. And then two years later, in 2010, at the DMV, renewing my driver's license, when one of the standard questions is, "Are you registered?" "Yes, I am." "Do you want to change your party affiliation?" And I said, you know, as a matter of fact, I do. And that's when I became uh, the Pennsylvania equivalent of, of, of an independent. Mm -hmm. So at the same time I was going through these political changes, 
I wanted my career to advance. Anybody who ever hears their voice on radio wants to hear it in markets all over the country. That's the nature of the beast. And I was being put into syndication right as I was proclaiming my independence. Not a good career move. Um, I became, uh, I had a syndicate, a, a syndicating station in New York. It was uh, uh, WOR. It was a huge achievement for me. And the station ownership, after I changed to independent, said, quote, if this continues, uh, we'll be cutting the show loose. You know, if what continues, it's the nature of, 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 of my business. Yeah. So smartest career path, and I wrote a novel on this, is read the talking points. The hardest thing is to try and do what I'm doing, which is to get some traction by preaching the sort of issues that I've talked about here today. We have an election coming up. One more yeah, question. Please. I'll open up for the questions to the audience. No election coming up. Um, do you have any um, fears? on what might be happening across the country. Well, the fear that I have happened, that the fear that I foresee is, I don't have a fear of Republicans retaking the House of Representatives, which they will do. I don't have a fear of Republicans taking control of the Senate. Flip a coin on that, I don't know. The fear that I have is down ballot in elections that were not following closely, You know that, that we don't do it this way in Pennsylvania, but secretaries of state, and the fact that two-thirds of, according to a Washington Post tally, two-thirds of Republicans seeking office this year uh, do not believe that the outcome of the 2020 election was legitimate. And these are individuals, many of whom will get elected and will be in positions of authority. And this, this lack of confidence in, this is something you know you and I have never had in our lives, the lack of confidence in election outcomes does scare me very much. I worry about what's to come in 2024, this, this mindset uh, of, of just trying to re-engineer the results regardless of the, the outcome is, is a very dangerous and new thought. Okay. With that very positive message. <laughs> well, you asked. <laughs> it is my fault. Uh, we have some questions. Um, do you have any questions from the audience? Yes. Do you want to address that? I have I have thoughts on it for sure. I'll, I'll go to you first. Okay, <laughs> I uh, I completely agree. I think with what you said at the end. If not here, where? Right now, if, if you could you could certainly concoct in your mind a, a hateful scenario that I couldn't 
buy into. But barring a very extreme example, in fact, Penn State just had this issue within the last 10 days with a founder of the of the Proud Boys. I kind of took my eye off it, but I know they canceled the event. Um, I don't know whether that would be my exception to the rule, but I am a big believer in it's why you're here. What a what a wonderful lab in which to be exposed, particularly to viewpoints with which you disagree. When I was an undergraduate at Lehigh, I remember well, and at the time I was, you know, my head was in a different place. I was the head of the Young Republican Club and they brought G. Gordon Liddy to campus. He was one of the Watergate burglars. And uh, Liddy had, I guess, just gotten out of prison and written a book called Will. And I was not at all involved in the speakers committee, but they, they had nobody else who was willing to take him to dinner. And the protocol was you took the speaker to dinner or somebody did, and then you delivered him to the church on time. So that was my responsibility. And I, I remember there was, there were voices of disagreement, um, but not the sort of thing that we see routinely now. And I also think it's Farrah, right? I also think that, um, some of these speakers play on that, right? If, I, if I'm Ann Coulter, if, if I'm some of those who they know if they go to Berkeley, it's going to get ugly. I'm convinced they go to Berkeley so it does get ugly. And then it kind of fuels and finances all the other places that they want to go where they'll be better received. So you're like playing into it if you're nasty. Much better, I think, that, that speakers come out, and if you disagree with them, you're there, and uh, you question them on, on the merits. I mean, you began today by talking about that, that horrible Pelosi incident. My way of trying to deal with it on air today was I read aloud the entire affidavit and went through what the FBI says you know, transpired in that attack, and I explained the origin of the rumors and how it came from a, a Fox affiliate in Oakland, not a political Fox affiliate, more like our Fox 29 in, in Philadelphia. But I wanted to take the time to try and break down, okay, here's how this thing was fueled based on misinformation, and here are the facts, at least according to the FBI. And of course, there were then people who called me and said, well, you can't trust the FBI, can you? <laughs> Fake news. What do you think about controversial speakers? Um, I agree with you. Um, I think that you have to hear uh, what they have to say. And then you have the right, after listening closely, to have a speech of your own, to take apart what they said and offer what you believe is counter evidence. Uh, you can't, uh, you have a right to protest outside. What happened in Penn State is a whole different story. Uh, Alex Stein, who's comedian slash provocateur, whatever he is, he went out there with the students and he intentionally antagonized them. And it got into a fight and it got violent. And that's why they canceled the uh, Proud Boy thing. It wasn't that it was just the Proud Boy speaking, it was the violence that came with it. There was absolutely no space for violence ever. Uh, I. That's when you lose me on it. Uh, they, if Ann Coulter comes, you have a right to protest, hold signs outside in a nonviolent way, and then you give a speech on why she's wrong on everything she says. But if you, if you shut it down, first of all, you don't know what they're saying. So how could you learn from it? And how could you counter it? So I agree with you in the audience. This is a university and we shouldn't shy away from opinions we disagree with, and then we can disagree with it. But we have to know what they are first in order to disagree with them. So we agree together on that. Um, any other questions in the audience? Yeah, my student, yay. <laughs> Edith 
Okay, I think, first of all, you realize what the problem is when you describe what you're being fed on TikTok or Instagram. Uh, Instagram has my number in that we have two dogs, and I'm a sucker for dog tricks and videos, the, the funny things. Right. And so, of course, I'm fed them all the time. Well, I realize it's because I've watched a few and therefore I'm being fed those in a political context. It's exact same. If you're if you're reading pro-choice advocacy, then you're going to get fed more of those things because somebody ultimately wants to sell you a product and keep your attention based on whatever it might be, dogs or the abortion issue. Most, I think, don't realize that they're being fed a steady stream based on their likes and dislikes. And therefore they think mistakenly that they're well-rounded because after all, they're reading all the things that were sent to them on TikTok or on Instagram or in the newsfeed on Facebook. So again, we've got to educate folks that just because you're reading a lot, it doesn't mean you're reading everything you ought to be reading. Here's the shameless plug and I have no problem making it because it'll cost you nothing. To deal with exactly what you're describing, I have launched a daily newsletter. My, now, every media outlet has a newsletter, okay? New York Times, Washington Post, left, right, whatever it might be, they all have a newsletter. But their newsletters all feed you their content every day. What's unique about mine is that I hand select the news links that go in it. It's distributed by 8 a.m. Philly time every day. And even if there are paywalls, my pledge is that if you scroll through what I include, you're going to get a balanced media diet. It might contain Fox News. It might have the Huffington Post. It might have Slayton Salon. It might even have Breitbart. But somewhere in that mix is going to be the balance that I think people need uh, in their news diet. So check it out. Sign up for it. If you don't like it, you don't have to stick around. Um, there are a couple of ads, but they're, they're not uh, over the top. And that's what I think we need more of. You've got to change the channel. You need a balanced media diet. Thank you. Yes. It gets worse. So I, I like I like the fact that you qualified it by saying so far. Thank you. I'm kidding.
meaning because of the candidates who are about to be elected or you fear violence in the way the election is carried out. Right. I'm not asking you to if you can just reform the question. Oh, that's a challenge because that was a long question. Right. Where do you draw the line? Where do you draw the line in terms of willingness to engage and confront those who threaten your rights? How's that? Okay, so I'm not don't mistake what I'm saying. I'm not here advocating that you be timid or disengaged or surrendering your strongly held beliefs. None of that. I'm saying be full on involved in the process, be civil, try and have dialogue even with people with whom you disagree. If they're seeking to take away a fundamental LGBTQ right of yours or choice or something that you hold dear, no, there, there need not be compromise in that context. But in a lot of other areas, I think that there, there needs to be. Um, this is not exactly what you're asking me. I thought back in the summer that abortion was going to be the issue of what happens a week from today. And as we're now drawing near, the polling data suggests that it is not the case. It's the economy. Uh, abortion came in fourth position in a, in a survey that I saw and respected this week. And uh, there's a lot of anger out there, particularly among Republicans. Republicans that I think is, is guiding the day, hence my, my somewhat prediction uh, uh, earlier. In the back, all the way in the back. Hold on. We've got, we got to run. Thank you. Um, the question I have is, having been a former staffer to Senator Specter, both in his D.C. office and in Pennsylvania, and joined by another former staffer, when we worked for him, we had a motley crew of staff when we were Republican. We had blacks, whites, Latinos, uh, Jewish members, Catholic members, it didn't matter, but our client was Pennsylvania. So in this current environment, we talked a lot about personalities, ideological uh, opinions. He actually had a line, I, I don't pay you for your opinion. If you want your, your opinion, I would have read the New York Times editorial page. That was a, a constant in our office, but our client was Pennsylvania. So how will Pennsylvania be served with these two candidates running for U.S. Senate? It's extremely challenging because that's, that's in, the, in a word. That's now I'm going to lose half the audience, at least in a word poorly. Yes, I think they are both so deficient. Sorry, I, I know I, I, I can judge, I think, the politics of the room somewhat. Um, one is a charlatan, and, and the other uh, is running on memes. And I think we are owed so much more, and, and, and that Senator Specter must be rolling over watching this, to have his intellect and to be followed by these two. It's so frustrating to, to me. Um, and when I think about his legacy, I think about not only the way that he would vote with independents, but the way he would vote, the way that he would visit every one of the 67 counties every year. He was a workhorse. And that job is about much more than just what lever you pull on a particular piece of legislation. And I don't see either of them. 
I don't see either of them being able to, to deliver um, on a seat that has such a, a rich legacy. So, yeah, and I saw it coming. I mean, back in the back in the primary, I I knew that the superior candidates were going to lose because of the deck being stacked for a closed primary. Um, Connor Lamb and Dave McCormick would have presented Pennsylvania with a bona fide different uh, set of policies, but from two very smart, competent, and successful individuals. And that is not the choice we're getting. Um, Thank, you, mm -hmm. Thank you, sir. Um, I wanted to ask, uh, you, you said uh, that you uh, was making $42 a day with uh, President Bush. Uh, and I wanted to ask, was that uh, the president, was that a, uh, one of the candidates that you actually wanted to run with? To uh, the question about President Bush, the father? Yes. So I, I had this uh, I had this funny thing happen where I, I actually, there's, I'm glad you brought this up because there's something very specific that I wanted to say to those of you who are younger in the room. And it's this, get involved. Pick a campaign, pick a candidate, and get involved. Matters not to me whether it's a Democrat or a Republican, a progressive or a conservative, but you have a unique opportunity when you're young to get involved in a campaign and be given responsibility and to meet people you might not think of it at the time who, if you stay in whatever that area is, might end up being a network or long-term friends. It's not why I got into it, um, but that ended up being the case in my life. And sometimes you'll have odd things happen that heap responsibility upon you. In this case, I go off to Lehigh University and I'm all fired up about the Republican Party because I've just had this, albeit unsuccessful outcome with my dad where he ran and lost, but I met interesting people and I got experienced in politics and I, I was just loving it. And you know, then I go and I, I see Senator Specter and he's campaigning with Ronald Reagan and I'm, I'm just hyped up. So I get to school as a freshman, and I got active in the Republican uh, on-campus effort, except there really wasn't one. So I formed a club, and it was called Lehigh University Youth for Reagan Bush. And I tried to register Republicans and get people enthused about the campaign with no success. So I had this idea. The idea was that I was gonna throw a keg party and I was going to invite the campus multitudes of Reagan Bush supporters to come to my kegger. Um, three half kegs of beer, I think. And, and rented a space on campus, you know, rental, $25 inexpensive, of a room about this size. This is kind of funny that I should tell this now, and I'm sorry if it's a tangent. But lo and behold, 1980, October, anybody who know the answer to this who hasn't heard me speak before, it's the Phillies and the World Series. Steve Carlton pitching Kansas City Royals. And nobody came to the kegger. Nobody. Me and the beer. That's it. So the beer on a hand dollar ends up going back to my freshman dorm where I probably should have been the whole night watching the Phillies and drinking beer with my hallmates. But that summed up my club. Like we had nothing going on. And lo and behold, in the 11th hour of the campaign, Papa Bush, George Herbert Walker Bush, 
makes a campaign stop at the Bethlehem Steel Plant, which was a mile away from campus. And they desperately needed volunteers to unload the luggage from his airplane and to drive the motorcade cars. Can you imagine this? in a pre-9-11 world. Not the car he would be driving in, but all the staff cars behind it. So somebody gets my phone number because, hey, I've got this campus club of Reagan Bush supporters. They have no idea about the, the kegger that was a total bust. And I get a phone call and I'm asked, can you and your club members supply the volunteers for the future vice president of the United States? Well, I recruited on my freshman hall, you know, liberal, it didn't matter. Like, who wants to meet George Bush. Well, that was a pretty cool idea. So we worked on this one-day visit to Bethlehem Steel, and the person who coordinated that visit went on, after Bush was elected vice president, to be the director of advance for vice presidential advance. And then I was asked to intern in that office while I was still an undergraduate. So... That might not always happen, that's pretty unusual, but generally I find that good things happen when you volunteer. Pick a candidate whose policies you agree with, roll up your sleeves, go meet people, knock on some doors, you'll enjoy the experience. Really it's a great thing and especially when you're young so that you can make friends that you'll come back to time and again. One last question, down in the back. One great opportunity that's impending are the local election in Philadelphia next year when we'll elect a new mayor and city council. I'm wondering, uh, Michael, if you have any observations on what could be seven or eight really legitimate candidates uh, looking to, to replace, succeed Mayor Kenny. Well, that's a great example of a race where there are so many, whatever you're looking for, seems like it's going to be represented on that ballot, right? Including a number, I think for the first time, multiple um, women of substance, all seeking that job. So um, it's a great example of if you were to identify one of them and, and, and be willing to work for them, you would have the opportunity to be given a lot of responsibility, I'm sure. I don't, have a, uh, I don't have any strong feeling because I don't know what that field looks like. And I don't know, David, if I really know them all well enough to know. I knew Alan Dom, uh, you know, 100 years ago. And I think the guy is, is just brilliant. And I look at someone like him and I say, I wish more people of his caliber would be, he reminds me of Ed Rendell and that's a good thing in my book. Um, I should probably stop at that because I don't know, I don't know them well enough to have a strong opinion. I do like Alan, he's an old friend and for whomever you might want to work in the mayoral race, it's a good entry. I guess I would simply say that, so. Well, with that, I'd like to thank Mike Swarkanish for- Thank all of you, thank you. And thank, thank you so much for coming. Thank, thank you. Thank you for coming. Thank you. The